Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, A Wedding Gift by H. Ryder Haggard. This is later titled, Only a Dream. And they're almost identical in length. There is a slight change early on in the story, just a word here or there, and then there's a little bit of extra, there's one extra paragraph at the end, um, which I will read after um, you read this wonderful story to us. Please, Eric. (laughs) Oh, good. I like H. Ryder Haggard. Me too. A wedding gift. Footprints. Footprints. The footprints of one dead. How ghastly they look as they fall before me. Up and down the long hall they go, and I follow them. Pit, pat, they fall. Those unearthly steps, and beneath them starts up that awful impress. I can see it grow upon the marble, a damp and dreadful thing. Tread them down. Tread them out. Follow after them with muddy shoes and cover them up again. In vain. See how they rise through the mire. Who can tread out the footprints of the dead? And so on, up and down the dim vista of the past, following the sound of the dead feet that wander so restlessly, stamping upon the impress that will not be stamped out. Rave on, wild wind, eternal voice of human misery. Fall, dead footsteps, eternal echo of human memory. Stamp, miry feet. Stamp into forgetfulness that which will not be forgotten. And so on, on to the end. Pretty ideas, these, for a man about to be married, especially when they float into one's brain at night like ominous clouds into a summer sky. And one is going to be married tomorrow. There is no mistake about it, the wedding, I mean, to be plain and matter-of-fact, why there are the presents, and some of them, and very handsome presents they are. There is no mistake about it, the wedding, I mean, to be plain and matter-of-fact, why there are the presents, or some of them, and very handsome presents they are, ranged in solemn rows upon the long table. It is a remarkable thing to observe when one is going to make a really satisfactory marriage, how hundreds of unsuspected friends crop up around one and send little tokens of their esteem. It was very different when I married my first wife, I remember. But then that marriage was not satisfactory. There they stand in solemn rows, as I have said, and inspire me with beautiful thoughts about the native kindness of human nature, especially the human nature of one's distant cousins. It is possible to grow very poetical over a silver teapot when one is going to be married tomorrow. On how many future mornings shall I be confronted with that teapot? Probably for all my life. And on the other side of the teapot will be the cream jug and the electroplated urn will hiss away behind them both. Also, the chased sugar basin will be in front, full of sugar. And behind everything will be my wife. My dear, she will say. Will you have another cup of tea? And probably I shall have another cup. 
Well, it is very curious to notice what ideas will come into a man's head sometimes. Sometimes something waves a magic wand over his being, and from the recesses of his soul, dim things arise and walk. At times they come, at times he grows aware of the issues of his mysterious life, and his heart shakes and shivers like a lightning-shattered tree. And in that drear light, all earthly things seem far, and all unseen things draw near and take shape and awe him. And he knows not what is true and what is false. Neither can he trace the edge that marks off the spirit from the life. Then it is that the footsteps echo and the ghostly footprints will not be stamped out. Pretty thoughts again. And how persistently they come. It is one o'clock and I will go to bed. The rain is falling in sheets outside. I can hear it lashing against the window panes and the wind wails through the tall, wet elms at the end of the garden. I could tell the voice of those elms anywhere. I know it as well as the voice of a friend. What a night it is. We sometimes get them in this part of England in October. It was just such a night when my first wife died, and that is three years ago. I remember how she sat up in her bed. Ah, those horrible elms, she said. I wish you would have them cut down, Frank. They cry like a woman. And I said I would. And just after that, she died, poor dear. And so the old elms stand, and I like their music. It is a strange thing. I was half brokenhearted, for I loved her dearly. And she loved me with all her life and strength. And now I am going to be married again. Frank, Frank, don't forget me. Those were my wife's last words. And indeed, though I am going to be married again tomorrow, I have not forgotten her. I shall never forget how Annie Guthrie, whom I am going to marry now, came to see her the day before she died. I know that Annie always liked me more or less, and I think that my dear wife guessed it. After she had kissed her and bid her a last goodbye, and the door had closed, she spoke quite suddenly. There goes your future wife, Frank, she said. You should have married her at first instead of me. She is very handsome and very good, and she has 2,000 a year. She would never have died of a nervous illness. And she laughed a little and then added suddenly, oh, Frank, dear, I wonder if you will think of me before you marry Annie Guthrie. Wherever I am, I shall be thinking of you. And now the time that she foresaw has come, and heaven knows that I have thought of her, poor dear. Ah, those footsteps of one dead that will echo through our lives, those woman's footprints on the marble flooring, which will not be stamped out. Most of us have heard and seen them at some time or other, and I hear and see them very plain tonight. Poor dead wife, I wonder if there are any doors in the land where you have gone through which you can creep out to look at me tonight. I hope that there are none. Death must indeed be a hell if the dead can see and feel and take measure of the forgetful faithlessness of their beloved. Well, I will go to bed and try and get a little rest. I am not so young or so strong as I was, and this wedding wears me out. I wish that the whole thing were done or had never been begun. What was that? 
It was not the wind, for it never makes that sound here. Then it was not the rain, for the rain has ceased its surging for a moment, nor was it the howling of a dog, for I keep none. It is more like the crying of a woman's voice. But what woman can be abroad on such a night or at such an hour, half past one in the morning? There it is again. A dreadful sound. It makes the blood turn chill and yet has something familiar about it. It is a woman's voice calling round the house. There she is at the window now and rattling it. And great heavens, she is calling me. Frank, 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 she calls. I strive to stir and unshutter the window, but before I can get there, she is knocking and calling it another. Gone again with her dreadful wail of Frank, Frank. Now I hear her at the front door and half mad with a horrible fear, I run down the long dark hall and unbar it. There is nothing there. Nothing but the wild rush of the wind and the drip of the rain from the portico. But I can hear the wailing voice going round the house, past the patch of shrubbery. I close the door and listen. There, she has got through the little yard and is at the back door now. Whoever it is, she must know the way about the house. Along the hall, I go again, through a swing door, through the servants' hall, stumbling down some steps into the kitchen where the embers of the fire are still alight in the grate, diffusing a little warmth and light into the dense gloom. Whoever it is at the door is knocking now and her clenched hand against the hard wood. And it is wonderful, though she knocks so low, how the sound echoes through the empty kitchens. There I stood and hesitated, trembling in every limb. I dared not open the door. No words of mine can convey the sense of utter desolation that overpowered me. I felt as though I was the only living man in the whole world. Frank, Frank, cries the voice with the dreadful familiar ring in it. Open the door. I am so cold. I have so little time. My blood stood still, and yet my hands were constrained to obey. Slowly, slowly, I lifted the latch and unbarred the door, and as I did so, a great rush of air snatched it from my hands and swept it wide. The black clouds had broken a little overhead, and there was a patch of blue rain-washed sky with just a star or two glimmering fitfully in it. For a moment, I could only see this bit of sky, but by degrees I made out the accustomed outline of the great trees swinging furiously against it and the rigid line of the coping of the garden garden wall behind them. Then a whirling leaf hit me smartly on the face, and instinctively I dropped my eyes on to something that as yet I could not distinguish, something small and black and wet. What are you? I gasped. Somehow I seemed to feel that it was not a person. I could not say, who are you? Oh, don't you know me? Well, the voice with the far off familiar ring about it, and I mayn't come in and show myself i haven't the time you were so long opening the door and i am so bitterly cold oh so cold look there the moon is coming out and you will be able to see me i suppose that you long to see me as i have longed to see you as the figure spoke or rather wailed a moonbeam struggled through the watery air and fell on it it was short and shrunken the figure of a tiny woman also, it was dressed in black and wore a black veil thrown over the whole head, shrouding it after the fashion of a bridal veil. From every part of this veil and dress, the water fell in heavy drops. The figure bore a small basket on her left arm, and her hand, such a poor, thin little hand, 
gleamed white in the moonlight, I noticed that on the third finger was a red line, showing that a wedding ring had once been there. The other wrist and hand was stretched towards me as though in entreaty. All this I saw in an instant, as it were, and as I saw it, horror seemed to grip me by the throat as though it were a living thing, for as the voice had been familiar, so was the form familiar, though the churchyard had received it long years ago. I could not speak. I could not even move. Oh, don't you know me yet, wailed the voice, and I have come from so far to see you, and I cannot stop. Look, look, and she began to pluck feverishly with her poor thin hand at the black veil that enshrouded her. At last it came off, and as in a dream, I saw what in a dim, frozen way I had expected to see the white face and pale yellow hair of my dead wife. Unable to speak or to stir, I gazed and gazed. There was no mistake about it. It was she. I, even as I had last seen her, white with the whiteness of death, with purple circles round her eyes and the grave cloth yet beneath her chin, only her eyes were wide open and fixed upon my face, and a lock of the soft yellow hair had broken loose, and the wind tossed it. You know me now, Frank, don't you, Frank? Oh, it has been so hard to come and see you, and so cold, but you are going to be married tomorrow, Frank. And I promised, oh, a long time ago, to think of you when you were going to be married wherever I was. And I have kept my promise, and I have come from where I am, and brought a present with me. Oh, it was hard to die so young. I was so young to die and leave you, but I had to go. Take it, take it, be quick. I cannot stay any longer. I cannot give you my life, Frank. So I have brought you my death. Take it. And the figure thrust the basket into my hand, and as it did so, the rain came up again and began to obscure the moonlight. I must go, I must go, went on the dreadful, familiar voice in a cry of despair. Oh, why were you so long opening the door? I wanted to talk to you before you married Annie, and now I shall never see you again. Never, never, never. And as the last wailing notes died away, the wind came down with a rush and a whirl and the sweep of it and the sweep as of a thousand wings and threw me back into the house, bringing the door to with a crash after me. I staggered into the kitchen, the basket in my hand and set it on the table. Just then some embers of the fire fell in and a faint little flame rose and glimmered on the bright dishes on the dresser, even revealing a tin candlestick with a box of matches by it. I was well-nigh mad with the darkness and fear and seizing the matches. I struck one and held it to the candle. Presently it caught and I glanced round the room. It was just as usual as the servants had left it, and above the mantelpiece the eight-day clock ticked away solemnly. As I looked at it, it struck two, and in a dim fashion I was thankful for its friendly sound. Then I looked at the basket. It was a very fine white plated work with black bands running up it and a checkered black and white handle. I knew it well. I have never seen another like it. I bought it years ago at Madeira and gave it to my poor wife. Ultimately, it was washed overboard in a gale in the Irish Channel. I remember 
that it was full of newspapers and library books, and I had to pay for them. Many and many is the time that I have seen that identical basket standing there on that very kitchen table for my dear wife always used it to put flowers in. And the shortest cut from that part of the garden where her roses grew was through the kitchen. She used to gather the flowers and then come in and place her basket down on the table just where it stood now and order the dinner. All this passed through my mind in a few seconds as I stood there with a candle in my hand, feeling indeed half dead, and yet with my mind painfully alive. I began to wonder if I had gone asleep and was the victim of a nightmare. No such thing. I wish it had only been a nightmare. A mouse ran out along the dresser and jumped onto the floor, making quite a crash in the silence. What was in the basket? I feared to look, and yet some power within me forced me to it. I drew near to the table and stood for a moment listening to the sound of my own heart. Then I stretched out my hand and slowly raised the lid of the basket. I cannot give you my life, so I have brought you my death. Those were her words. What could she mean? What could it all mean? I must know, or I shall go mad. Therefore it lies, whatever it is, wrapped up in linen. Ah, heaven, help me. It is a small, bleached, human skull. Hmm. Ghost story for Christmas. <laughs> um, Indeed. Uh, so, I, I was a bit confused uh, about the publication on this, but uh, long story short, it gets a republication in 1920, uh, when uh, Haggard was still alive. He died in 1925, and it was uh, for that it was retitled, that publication in Smith and the Pharaohs and Other Tales, it was repu republished under the title Only a Dream, and he seems to have added a paragraph which I will now read to the ending. So uh, first I'll read the, the last two paragraphs, and then I'm going to read the two uh, added ones and see if that makes a major difference to the story. I cannot give you my life, so I've brought you my death. Those were her words. What could she mean? What could it all mean? I must know. I should go mad, or I shall go mad. There it lies. Whatever it is, wrapped up in linen. Ah, heaven help me. It is a small, bleached human skull. And then this is the added section. A dream. After all, only a dream by the fire. But what a dream. And I am to be married tomorrow. Can I be married tomorrow? Or I guess it should be, can I be married tomorrow? Uh, so it ends with a question, which I think I did, wouldn't have thought about, except... Uh, it does sort of shape the story and also titling it differently, a wedding gift versus only a dream. Uh, they're quite different, right? Well, I have what I think you may believe is an unusual interpretation of the story as originally published in 1905. All right. And I believe that that interpretation can accord with the added paragraphs. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. 
Okay, so I think that one could look at this as uh, a ghost story. His dead wife is haunting him mm-hmm. and is showing him something dreadful by giving her him, him her skull. Right. I would like to suggest the opposite. We are told that she loved him entirely. We are told that she said she should, that he should have married Annie Guthrie. Mm-hmm. His marriage to the dead wife was unsatisfactory, but it didn't mean that he was unsatisfied with it. What it means is that society was unsatisfied with it yes. because Annie Guthrie has 2000 a year, mm-hmm. but the dead wife did not. He had means. We know that because they live in a house with kitchens, as it's referred mm-hmm. to, meaning a suite of rooms for food preparation and the plural servants. Yep. So he married beneath his economic station. It was unsatisfactory before. But now that he's marrying satisfactorily, all of those friends are giving him presents. They are right. confirming that they are satisfied with this marriage. He is not very interested in this marriage. He even says at one point, I wish the whole affair had not begun. Mm. This doesn't sound to me like someone eagerly about to marry someone he loves. Mm. And he said his heart was half broken when she died of a nervous disorder. So she loved him completely. She wants him to be happy. And so what she gives him, I think, is not, in fact something horrible she gives him a memento mori Mm. i'm thinking of all of those skulls that sit on the desks of monks Mm -hmm. i'm thinking of hamlet contemplating yorick's skull Mm -hmm. the point of a memento mori is that if we remember death we know that we must make the most of every day Mm -hmm. and so this small bleached human skull in fact is a sign of love. Mm-hmm. He has left his wife unnamed as he's left himself unnamed. Mm-hmm. Only Annie Guthrie has a name. She is from society. He and his wife who died of a nervous disorder, they were the ones with the faded love. So when in the paragraphs that you, so when it says, you know, it, heaven help me, indeed, heaven help me. It, those monks with the memento mori mm-hmm. live each day as if it's your last. When in those new paragraphs which you hadn't let me know about before jesse i mean i knew you had them but you hadn't passed them on to me Mm -hmm. when he says at the end can i marry tomorrow he's actually asking himself should i take annie's advice Mm. contemplate how important it is to live every day properly and decide do i want to get into this merely satisfactory marriage and sit there for the rest of my life seeing the teapot and the sugar bowl and oh yes my wife will offer me tea and i'll probably take it Mm. you know it's interesting i i i I was thinking about the titles as well as the 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 ending so a wedding gift it's not the wedding gifts he gets lots of those and he contemplates some of them uh quite early in the story the teapots and the other thing behind it and then of course the wife is there behind the teapot but that's the new wife um Mm -hmm. one one of the other changes um is there's not that many one of the other changes is uh, an addition of a little phrase to the end of an early sentence i'm going to read the early sentence it was very different than when i married my first wife i remember but then that marriage was not satisfactory um i'm going to read it 
as revised for the 1925. It was very... It was very different when I married my first wife, I remember. But then that marriage was not satisfactory, just a love match. Which emphasizes ah. emphasizes the point, yeah, he doesn't love this new woman at all. It is uh, a woman he can get along with, he can imagine, and in fact he does imagine, uh, her behind these wedding gifts that all these cousins have brought to him who come out of the woodwork and have approved of this marriage, have come and said, look, this is good. We approve of it. This is going to be a good marriage. Unlike that last marriage, which was just a love match. When she dies, which we get a recall of, um, for a moment I thought Annie Guthrie had killed her because she comes out of the room and then shortly thereafter she dies. The trees the wife had wanted to have cut down because they are speaking um, are saying things to her perhaps that she doesn't like to hear. He says, I'm going to cut them down and then never does because she dies before he can. Um, when it's time for him to get married again, she, as you point out very rightly, and I hadn't thought about it too much, uh, doesn't have money. So what does she bring him? Her death. She is approving in a certain way of this marriage rather than what I was thinking originally. She is disapproving. And there's two other stories that are kind of similar that I, I don't know that H. Ryder Haggard uh, had read. But I want to point out that uh, H. Ryder Haggard, we, we mentioned he's a great writer. I just, uh, I'm show noting a show for The Brethren, which is a novel I'd not heard of. I'd heard of, you know, the famous ones, King Solomon's Mines and Brethren is such a great novel. Terrific novel <laughs> um, from around the same period. And it just makes you, I think it was 1904, 1903, um, just makes you want to read more Haggard because he's very subtle, very thoughtful, um, and the writing is expertly crafted. So the he, he's, he's doing Sir Walter Scott in that book. Here, I think he's doing Poe. There's two Poe stories I thought of uh, when reading this. One is uh, The Raven. There's a woman at the door, he thinks. No, it turns out, no, she's at the window. No, no, she's not there. It's a raven, right? Here, it's actually a woman who's trying to get into the house, and he takes too long, and it's all a dream, possibly. But there's an even more obscure Edgar Allan Poe story, which I, I think about quite a lot, called Eleonora. I think... Oh, sorry. Ah, uh, I was going to say you were thinking of Lygia. Uh, he does this a lot, uh, but uh, right, because in, in Lygia the dead wife comes back. Yes, yes, indeed. The difference, though, in Eleonora, unlike all other Poe stories, where it's super creepy and it's sort of a downbeat <laughs> ending, um, or a massively downbeat ending. In Eleonora, it's rather odd because the wife who he lives in a valley of flowers with. It's some dreamland sort of place. When she dies, she makes him promise not to remarry. And he says, I will always honor this. But then time passes, and eventually he falls in love with another woman. And the ghost of Eleonora comes back and says, marry her. And that's shocking for Poe, because... Mostly, he can't get over women, right? He just can't. He, <laughs> right. He's just obsessed with the dead woman, and he can't think of 
life without the dead woman to uh, insanity's sake. Here, in that situation, he gets over it. There's also a Baudelaire poem called The Revenant that is about a a guy who's, I am assuming, saying to his girlfriend, uh, when, <laughs> if I die, I'm going to haunt you every night. <laughs> Very creepily, right? Um, I'm going to haunt you every night and you will never be without me. I will, every wind, every rustle of the trees outside will be me uh, speaking to you about our our love from the grave. And in the end of this story, she says, uh, well, not in the end, but in the middle of this story, she says, basically, I'll never see you again. There is no heaven. And that much better fits with your idea of this being a memento mori. And Harry Furness, the guy whose magazine this was, he's the illustrator, famous illustrator at the time, he places that skull on the desk in the first illustration and or the table and the thing about this is i really gotta say i love thinking about this as just another object on the table with the teapot and the coffee pot and the sugar sugar mm. bowl because he's looking at those things and saying shall i marry this woman i'm i've already got the wedding gifts here it's tomorrow i don't love her but my wife has given me this gift. So yeah. changing the title to only a dream, I think tips the scales of the, of the lady or the tiger style story. It's saying the tiger versus <laughs> the, the lady. Whereas a wedding gift, I think tips it the other way. I, I, I agree, Jesse. I think that as a wedding gift, it is more powerful. Um, because it, in that sense, it really probes what might be the selflessness of love, the selflessness of love that Frank, I mean, is he Frank? She calls him Frank. Mm. Um, right? He doesn't ever give his name, but no. she calls him Frank. And you can't help but wonder if indeed he is honest. Yeah. Um, he seems to be honest with himself. He's mm -hmm. not making out that he's in love with Annie Guthrie. No. Um, Right. So she wants to him. ask. She, she wants him. Um, but maybe Annie really does want him to have something because she knows he can never have the great love that he had with with her. But he can at least have a companionable life with with Annie. But what she wants him to know is, as you have that life, understand it, savor what you can of it live it she's not trying to stop him from getting married it is a wedding gift and you need frank to do with it as you see best because i will never see you again mm. which is amazing because although she will never see him again as you've shown us jesse haggard felt although he had already in my view said this brilliantly you know, talking about the footprints that will not be covered up mm. in one's life, that there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash 
SFF Audio.